Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com. From Texas Public Radio, this is Texas Matters, a weekly radio news magazine that looks at the issues, events, and people in the Lone Star State. Today on Texas Matters, Brent Brewer says he's sorry for a murder he committed 33 years ago. He's facing the death penalty within days. Even though it's 33 years ago, I don't even know where to begin now. How do you fix something that can't be fixed? Staffing problems and training issues is leading to more violence in Texas prisons. The sound is almost like a, maybe like a baseball bat hitting a side of beef. That probably was the most brutal sounding use of force I'd ever heard. And where can people in Texas turn if they don't have a local public hospital? And really just let them know, hey, that they're cared for when they come in here. Uh, because we believe that everyone who comes in here has value and dignity and was created in the image of Jesus. This is Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. Brent Ray Brewer received the death penalty for the 1990 robbery and murder of Robert Doyle Lamanac. Brewer and Christy Lynn Lindstrom approached Lamanac outside his Amarillo business and asked for a ride to the Salvation Army. On the way there, Brewer pulled out a knife and stabbed Lamanek to death. They took his wallet, which contained $140, and then they went to a friend's apartment where they changed out of their bloody clothes. Two weeks later, they were arrested in Red Oak, south of Dallas. Lindstrom was sentenced to life in prison, but Brewer was given the death penalty, and he set for execution on November the 9th. In a video provided by his attorneys, Brewer expresses remorse for the murder of Lamanek. Even though it's 33 years ago, I don't even know where to begin now. How do you fix something that can't be fixed? The 53-year-old guy you're looking at now is not the 19-year-old I was in April of 90. I don't even know that kid. It's, how do you explain stabbing somebody and then running off and you don't know what happened until later on you find out they bled out. When you're 19, 20 and, and you're confused or you're on drugs or you're drinking or you're hanging around the wrong people, you have no real value system. I, I guess you call it a moral compass. I sobered up in the county jail and realized that I had done something I can't undo and I just I had to live with that every day attorneys for Brewer continue to try to prevent the execution arguing that the death sentence is the invalid product of junk science they do not dispute the facts of the crime but they say the death penalty is not justified Sean Nolan is an attorney for Brent Brewer. And our focus really is, is just on the, on the sentencing and, the, and the, um, the fact that he was sentenced to death. And uh, in a large part, the, the main reason he was sentenced to death is because the state presented unreliable and false evidence from a guy named Dr. Coons, who they have used in multiple cases uh, in Texas. And Dr. Coons um, 
has basically been found by the courts to be an unreliable witness. His testimony and his science has been found to be junk science. Uh, but yet they still are moving forward with Brent's execution in spite of that. The um, the CCA, the Court of Criminal Appeals, the highest criminal court in Texas, has found that, that this Dr. Kuhn's uh, testimony is unreliable and should not be uh, used in these cases. And in fact, after they made a decision in a case called Cobble v. State back in 2010, Dr. Coons has never testified since then. Yet, uh, Brent, Brent's appeal was denied the following year because the Court of Criminal Appeals found that his attorney did not properly preserve the issue, which was not really the case. His attorney objected multiple times to the testimony of Dr. Coons. And in fact, the judge, uh, the trial judge, found that that okay, you have a you have a continuing objection to this testimony. What else are you supposed to do as a lawyer at that point? Um, but then the Court of Criminal Appeals found that that the issue was waived and never reached the merits of the junk science of Dr. Coons's testimony. So what we're doing now is we're trying to get the court to uh, to re to revisit that issue. Uh, the CCA uh, we filed two motions a couple days ago asking them to to revisit this issue. Uh, based on intervening cases that they have decided um, about how, you know, the issue of waiver and default works. And so we've asked them to have another look at this case and say that this that this should not have happened. And the other really important thing about this case is that, you know, we know that the jury was misled because uh, a juror has come out and said that in a sworn declaration. Um, and, you know, she has asked that, that Brent's execution be... Uh, be halted, that a stay be put in place. And so that's what we're asking. During the sentencing of a capital crime and, and the prosecution is asking for the death penalty, one of the arguments that they have to bring and prove is that the defendant is going to be an ongoing threat to society, even if right. he is behind bars, that he will be continue to kill people even if he is in prison. Is, is, that's correct, right? Yes, and that's and that it's what we call future dangerousness. That's the that's the term of art that is used in the Texas statute. That he has to be the jury has to find that he is a future danger, and that's what that's what this this doctor, this hack doctor, testified to that he would be a future danger. And this was in spite of the fact that at the time he testified in 2009, Brent had been in prison for 20 years and had never caused a single problem uh, during the time he was in prison. Yet he, this doctor can, you know, got on the stand and said he will be a future danger. It's just wrong. And since that time, Brent has had a stellar record in, in prison. And so we know he's not a future danger. So that testimony was false. It was relied on by the jury. And it's really a travesty. This should not go forward. So, uh, Dr. Coons, what was his examination of Brent Brewer like? That's the most amazing thing. He never even met him. He looked at some records and, and, and then put this testimony on the stand. And that's outrageous. That should never happen. Uh, there are, I mean, the, you know, the, the regulations for doctors to testify about somebody's mental status require them to examine the person. And that did not happen in this case. He never met Brent, yet he got up on the stand and said that Brent had no conscience and that he would be a future danger to society even in prison. That was just outrageous testimony that should never have been presented to a court. Sean Nolan is an attorney for Brent Brewer. Brewer has an execution date of November the 9th. He was convicted of the murder of Bob Lamanek of Amarillo.
Thirteen guards from a Texas prison have been fired or resigned after the beating of an inmate that left him hospitalized, likely for the rest of his life. Texas Public Radio accountability reporter Paul Flav spoke with several eyewitnesses who, along with former staff, saying staffing and training issues are leading to more violence. Tim Nixon knew something bad was about to happen. It was 9.15 p.m., and he had just been rousted from his cell by three guards whose names he didn't know and whose name tags, he says, were obscured by full tactical riot gear. Call it intuition, call it, you know, whatever you want to call it. But you can tell that somebody's fixing to get their ass whooped. Nixon says they placed him in a holding cell about 40 feet down the run, directly across from another cell, cell number one. Then the guards joined a half dozen others lined up outside cell one. The Alternative Living Unit, or ALU, where Nixon currently lived at Cofield Unit, holds 12 men in solitary confinement who have a high risk of escape or who have assaulted guards in the past. People like the occupant of cell one, Kaheem Grant. I'm literally 20 feet away in this holding cell, and I can see Grant in his cell. What Nixon had missed was that Grant, minutes before, had assaulted an officer. A feud between Grant and a new sergeant had boiled over, says Harold Laird, who lived on the same wing. From my experience with him, he's never been a violent person just because he can. You have to push him, and the thing is, it doesn't take much push. And Laird says Sergeant Gabriel Quay had been pushing. Grant, who was in prison for murder, already had issues with authority and wasn't opposed to lashing out. Quay couldn't be reached for comment, but he had recently been promoted and moved to ALU. Laird and others say Quay kept messing up, antagonizing inmates and bringing men food that they were allergic to. So he really didn't know what to do. We were trying to tell him, look, this is how you do things, but we're inmates. We can't tell him what to do. Laird says Quay and Grant did not like one another. And since the sergeant got there two weeks prior, things had been simmering. That night, a verbal altercation between the men escalated. Then he shot him in the neck with a spear, right then and there. Laird admits he didn't see this happen, but he and others were told Grant had fashioned some sort of a gun and shot some sort of an arrow or sharp object at Quay through the one-inch holes in their steel doors. Laird did see the blood. And I came to the door and I looked and I'd seen little splatters of blood on the run. Quay was briefly hospitalized, but TDCJ did not release details of his condition, citing privacy laws. About 10 minutes later, a major showed up and Laird heard Grant say he knew they needed to come into his cell to take his weapon and that he would not resist. Another 45 minutes later, an extraction team of about nine people with pads and helmets showed up. The guards handcuffed Grant behind his back through the door, which in this unit is two pairs of cuffs, a small black box, a chain, and a padlock and they told him to get on his knees. Laird says he expected retaliation by the guards. They're going to get theirs, right? I mean, this is prison. What do, you, what do you expect? No one expected what they heard, and in Nixon's case, witnessed. They open the door and run in and proceed to beat the crap out of this guy. Nixon says guards held Grant down, and three began beating him with things like a shin guard and their fists. He says he then saw something he'd never seen in 33 years of incarceration. A guard removed his helmet and raised it up. And it's just missing the ceiling by inches. So he's raising it eight and a half, almost nine feet up, and bringing it down on Offender Grant's head multiple times. The man is completely unresponsive at this point. Harold Laird. I hear a loud, meaty, thumping sound. The sound is almost like a maybe like a baseball bat 
hitting a side of beef, that's probably was the most brutal sounding use of force I'd ever heard. In an email, Servando Dominguez, another inmate on the wing, says it wasn't a use of force. They were, quote, beating him like an animal and, quote, trying to kill him. You come even as a convicted murderer, which I am, have a 1990 murder conviction. You come to realize that you're going too far at some point. And the most uh, alarming thing to me was at no point did anybody stop it. At no point did even say, hey, this is going, hey, hey, hey. There was, uh, even when it was finished, there was no single bit of remorse. They picked him up, laid him down on the ground, and they left him there. It was 10 to 20 minutes later, a nurse arrived with a wheelchair, and they loaded him into it. And had to hold him in the wheelchair because he was totally flaccid. His whole body was just, he was out. Grant is currently at a prison hospital in a coma that his family says he likely won't wake from. A spokeswoman for the Texas Department of Criminal Justice says the guards used excessive force. Seven were terminated, six resigned, and a criminal investigation is ongoing. What about the culture that promotes this type of incident, what, this type of action towards inmates? Retribution is nothing new here, say inmates like Christian McMillan. But TDCJ says it began moving away from use of force plans to behavioral intervention plans last year. McMillan says three of the guards who now have been terminated were known for joking about beating obstructive inmates. In conversation, like it's cool, like, you know, this is what we do, you know, this is, this is the thing. We just conversate and laugh about it. He says understaffing compounds all the tension. Cofield is short about 430 guards, meaning 60% of guard positions are unfilled. That is insane. Lance Lowry is past president for the union representing Texas prison guards. I, my mind can't even understand why it'd get to that level. That is incredibly dangerous, not only for the inmates, the officers, but the community. The staffing shortage for inmates means less access to showers and recreation time, food showing up hours late. For guards, it means more forced overtime and less time with family. I mean, you mix that combination, it's an explosive formula. You're going to see more use of force. And all of this was avoidable, says Lowry, who has been advocating for better working conditions, think air conditioning and higher wages, for more than a decade. But he says that went largely unaddressed. TDCJ says it raised pay about 20% since last April and launched new initiatives to recruit that have shown modest success, with 1,100 less vacancies than April 2022. It does not believe what happened to Grant in early September has anything to do with staffing or training. South Houston House Rep Gene Wu says the Texas Senate gutted a proposal to pass money approved from his chamber last session that could have helped install air conditioning and raise wages higher. Staffing is his number one concern. The number of people who are willing to work in a brutal environment where there is just unbelievable heat every single day, where you're, you're understaffed, overworked, and underpaid, who wants to do that? But he says it's unlikely the state takes action. I would welcome federal oversight. You know, our state unfortunately has a bad habit of not dealing with serious problems until basically courts or the federal government force us to deal with it. He and others like Lowry think if nothing is done, the violence, brutality, and heat will continue to get worse. 
I'm Paul Flav in Tennessee Colony, Texas. More than half of the new HIV infections in the United States are in the South, and Texas has the second highest rate for new infections in the country. Treatments like PrEP help lower people's chance of getting the virus. But KERA's Elena Rivera reports not everyone who's at risk can afford it or can find a doctor to prescribe it. The first time Rafael Ruiz de Velasco heard about PrEP, it wasn't from his doctor. It was from a dating app. Because people were saying, on PrEP, what does that mean? I thought I was just getting old and they were using some kind of new lingo. Like, what am I missing? (laughs) PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is a medication that prevents about 99% of HIV infections. It's a -a once-a-day pill or a shot every few months, but it needs a prescription. So Ruiz de Velasco went to his doctor to ask for it. But his doctor didn't know what he was talking about. Isn't that crazy? I just assumed all medical professionals would know what this is. I don't understand how that's not part of their dialogue. PrEP's been around as an HIV prevention tool since 2012. It's recommended for people who are at higher risk of catching the virus, like gay and bisexual men and people who inject drugs. But many doctors just aren't educated about HIV and don't offer screenings as part of routine STI testing. If you're not geared up to do certain types of care, it is clumsy, it's slow, it takes longer. That's Doug Hardy, a physician with Prism Health North Texas. The clinic's connected people to HIV and STI care since the 80s. Our biggest problem is getting patients to actually be able to take these medications and get access to them and know about it. And this isn't just an issue in North Texas. Jeffrey Campbell is the CEO of Allies and Hope in Houston, which connects people living with HIV to housing and medical services. He says if doctors don't know how to support their patients, it can stop people from getting tested or seeking treatment altogether. Because it's already been a struggle to get there and to get those words out, they're like, oh, okay, I don't need it. I'm good. Because who? My doctor told me that I don't need it. Those words carry a lot of weight. Plus, Campbell says some folks still don't know that PrEP is for them. The way that PrEP was initially rolled out, it wasn't covered by insurance. The people who got on it were rich white gay men because they could afford it. And new data from the CDC shows there's still a gap. PrEP usage has gone up since 2019, but mostly among white people, even though Latinx and Black people make up the majority of new HIV infections. Ruiz de Velasco eventually got a prescription for PrEP from his doctor, but he didn't have insurance, and the cost of one month of PrEP could be $2,000 or more. The pharmacist told me how much it was going to be, and he just looked at me like, are you sure you want this? I didn't know it would be that much. No, I can't. (laughs) I can't afford that. So we had to take it back, you know, and it was disappointing. This is common in Texas, which has the highest rate of uninsured people in the country. It's 16.6%. That's like if everyone in Dallas and Tarrant counties didn't have insurance. Ruiz de Velasco thought he couldn't access PrEP until a friend told him about PRISM. The clinic helped pay for the medication, plus the lab work needed every few months. Nationally, Medicaid takes care of a lot of these costs. But Texas is one of 10 states that hasn't expanded Medicaid, which means there are millions of dollars of funding clinics like PRISM can't access. Hardy says they do their best. I think we always want to provide care to as many people as we can, have a safety net. That's the greater good for the whole community. But there's only so much they can do without Medicaid expansion. And that bothers Ruiz de Velasco. I don't understand the delay with wanting to fund a community or a program that prevents 
any kind of disease from bringing havoc upon your life. He says getting on PrEP gave him peace of mind. And everyone should have the same opportunity whether or not they have health insurance. I'm Elena Rivera in Dallas. Where do Texans go when they don't have health insurance but they need to see a doctor? In the urban counties, residents typically can go to a public hospital. Like in Dallas County, residents can go to Parkland Hospital. In Bear County, there's University Hospital. But folks in counties without a public hospital, like in Collin County, where do they go? KRA's Carolyn Love says faith-based groups are trying to fill that gap. City Bridge Urgent Care in Plano operates almost like a regular free clinic. But there are a few differences. Patients listen to Christian worship music in the waiting room. Kids can read Bible storybooks in English or Spanish. And every room has at least one Bible. Clinic director Chuck Bielke says the urgent care blends spiritual care with health care. We'll just ask them, hey, are there ways that we can be praying for them? And really just let them know, hey, that they're cared for when they come in here. Uh, Because we believe that everyone who comes in here has value and dignity and was created in the image of Jesus. The clinic was founded about five years ago. Bilkey says the number of patients has grown each year since. The clinic has served more than 2,000 patients so far this year. That number could have been higher. Bilkey says it's not uncommon to turn away patients. There are times when the clinic does have to close just because we don't have enough providers. People also come to the urgent care for chronic diseases like diabetes. But Bilkey says City Bridge Urgent Care doesn't help with that. So he sends them to Hope Clinic in McKinney. It's a clinic supported by several churches that serves the uninsured. Executive Director Andrea Naff says Hope Clinic enrolls uninsured patients in primary care. Their providers help patients manage things like high blood pressure and diabetes. Naff says there are limits to the health care the clinic can provide. Primary care doctors whose patients have insurance can refer them to specialists. But Hope Clinic has a harder time doing that. NAF says a county hospital would fill that gap. Just because North Texas is affluent in many ways, I think it's foolish of us to overlook what we could provide for those who are without. Some Collin County residents can see a doctor through the county's indigent care program. You have to be at or below the federal poverty level to qualify. Hope Clinic sees patients who may still be struggling financially, but can't get help through that program. Collin County Public Health Director Candy Blair says the county doesn't need a public hospital. She says higher health care costs are too big a problem for the county to solve alone. It's a federal issue and there's no possible way that the taxpayers can bear the burden of all of that. Parkland Hospital in Dallas gets about 40 percent of its budget from Dallas County taxpayers. Senior Vice President Mike Malays says elected officials want the public hospital to only serve Dallas County residents. And it's a reasonable position. They can't take care of everybody in 254 counties across the state. Malays says they often send people who travel from surrounding counties back home to get care. That's not an option when people show up at the emergency room. It's against the law to turn those patients away. Naff says that's what many help clinic patients used to do. Oftentimes, People who come here have before used the ER as their primary care. And that is very costly for taxpayers, for the hospitals. A public hospital isn't the only solution. Belay says Collin County could expand its indigent care program. The county could also pay a local hospital district to send patients there. But the need for more health care options for the uninsured isn't going to disappear. 
Collin County is growing into a heavily populated urban center. As it grows, it's going to continue facing challenges with social services on a scale that it probably hasn't experienced in the past. Faith-based groups like Hope Clinic and City Bridge are doing their best to meet a lot of that need. But there may come a day when it's too much to do alone. I'm Caroline Love in Collin County. Last year, Texas ranked last in the nation when it came to access to children's mental health services. But the need for counseling and other services is dire. KACU's Samantha Gutierrez has more on the importance of mental health care for youth and the state's effort to close the gap. State lawmakers passed a bill this year that created a so-called innovation grant program. The goal is to open up $15 million in funding for providers that work with children who need mental health services. Since the COVID-19 pandemic, the demand for mental health care has increased. But the federal government estimates that 98% of Texas's 254 counties don't have enough mental health professionals. Jennifer Farah, Chief Operating Officer at Betty Hardwick Center, says the mental health care provider in Abilene has experienced hiring challenges since the pandemic. Three, five years ago, we have about the same number of open positions sometimes, but what we see is they may remain open longer. For longer periods of time, people are choosing sometimes not to do traditional work. At the same time, adolescent depression has been getting more severe. Texas counts 12.3 deaths by suicide per 100,000 adolescents ages 15 to 19, according to America's Health Rankings. In 2021, 33% of Texas high school students reported persistently feeling stressed, anxious, or depressed during the previous month. And 22% of those seriously considered suicide. And I feel like adults don't really see what teens see. Cooper High School senior Kamani Ford says the world he and his friends live in is different from that of their parents. They can't really see from their perspective because things were so much different back then. Things now have become a lot more harsh and the environment has become a lot more toxic. Ford says students with different lifestyles struggle with judgment from their peers. That can add stress to the usual demands of school. He says he has seen administrators taking steps to improve resources for struggling students. The school itself has really put an emphasis on mental health. On our IDs, there's a suicide prevention hotline, and they recently added that about two years ago, and I feel as though they're starting to notice these things more and more every single day. Ford is part of a group on his campus that brings students together to discuss mental health issues. He says he has noticed that even teachers are paying more attention to their students' mental health. I feel like there are certain teachers within the school who really reach out to students, who really tell students like, hey, if there's anything you want to talk about, I'm here. Just someone who will listen to you, someone who can talk to you. You don't have to come to me every day. But I feel as though there are some teachers who really notice those things. Texas requires school districts to employ one school counselor for every 500 students. Cecilia Castillo counselor at Cooper High School, says effective advocacy requires relationship building. That's hard to do when you're working with 500 kids. As you develop those relationships and you find out what the issues are or what they're facing, then our goal is to find, to direct them in ways of whoever can help them with whatever problems they're encountering. Schools are also struggling to fill openings for counselors. 
In an effort to address that shortage, state legislators passed a law this year allowing districts to hire chaplains to serve as counselors. The bill was strongly opposed by both religious and counseling communities because chaplains are not licensed to treat mental health issues. State Representative Stan Lambert, a Republican from Abilene, says he's glad the issues got some attention during the most recent legislative session. But Texas needs to invest much more to help districts meet students' needs. Uh, We need to put trained counselors in our schools that can detect and identify and work with staff on those those children and those students that do have uh, do have needs in this area. So I think the funding is going to be important. Lawmakers will convene in Austin this month for a special legislative session that will focus on school funding. Mental health services in schools likely won't be addressed. I'm Samantha Gutierrez in Abilene. That's it for this edition of Texas Matters. Thanks for listening. I'm David Martin Davies. You can email us at texasmatters at tpr.org. There are past episodes of Texas Matters on our website at tpr.org. And you can also download, rate, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. And tune in again next week for another edition of Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com.